Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10. Made to the 10th chapter of 1 Samuel. Chapter 8, as you recall, the people of Israel had asked for a king, and the Lord told Samuel that he would oblige them for the request. And so, through the providential guiding hand of God, we saw last week, the Lord brings an unknown Benjamite by the name of Saul into contact with Samuel. Look at uh, chapter 9, 1 Samuel 9, verse 15, just to recap a little bit. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Now Saul had been looking, looking for lost donkeys, if you recall the story, and God used that circumstance to bring Saul into contact with Samuel. In chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel uh, privately anoints Saul to be the king. Uh, it says there in verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? But since this was the, this was the first in Israel, they've never had a king before. And Saul's going to be the, the one chosen to be king. He's totally clueless about what's happening here. Uh, this is all in real time happening for him. He doesn't know the end of the story like we do. He hasn't read the Old Testament. He didn't have it. He didn't know all this. This is happening. Uh, it's the first time for him. And so he's clueless about what's going on. So the Lord is going to take measures to confirm this divine appointment uh, of Saul to be the first king of Israel. So we move from Saul's anointing to Saul's validation. Saul's validation in verses 2 to 13. Since no one had ever been king before, you know, I mean, he needed some validation, right? He needed some assurance that he was the man for the job. Now think about it. Put yourself in Saul's shoes for a minute. Can you imagine what Saul was thinking when Samuel has this dinner for him in chapter 9 and anoints him to be a privately, a private anointing to be the king, first king of Israel? I mean, this guy didn't know. I mean, he went out looking for donkey, lost donkeys that day, right, or a few days before. He said, you know, the donkeys of my fathers are lost. Go out and find them. And he ends up be becoming anointed as the first king of Israel. This is the, nothing could have been further from his mind than for this to happen, right? You know, he's on the farm, and next thing you know, he's being anointed king of Israel. So in order to clear up any doubts about the Lord's claim on Saul, as his first king, Samuel predicts three signs that are going to take place immediately. Now, these three signs we're going to see are going to validate uh, his role, Saul's role as king, and Saul's going to be reassured about this. Sign number one is in verse two. He says, Samuel says, when you go for me today, you're going to, you're going to find a couple of men close to Rachel's tomb, and they're going to tell you the donkeys which you have been looking for, they've been found. Now your father's not worried about the donkeys anymore. He's worried about you, wondering where you are. And so that's, that's the sign. That's, what happened. that's what's going to happen. Um, and so this sign would confirm uh, that, you know, by, by the way, Samuel had already told Saul that the donkeys had been found in chapter 9, verse 20. But this is going to confirm it in a major way that, you know, they have been found. And it's going to alleviate his concern over the immediate problem. He doesn't have to worry about lost donkeys anymore. Now he can start focusing on 
what his next job is, and that is to be the king of Israel. That's going to be the first sign that's going to come to pass. It's going to validate his kingship. And the second sign is found in verses 3 and 4. Uh, Samuel says, then after, all, after that first sign takes place, you're going to go further on. You're going to, you're going to meet three men going up to Bethel. Uh, they're going to be uh, carrying um, three young goats. They're going to be carrying three loaves of bread. Another is going to be carrying a, a jug of wine. And then they're going to greet you and give you two loaves of bread. And that's what's going to happen on that sign. And, so, and that's going to take place. Now, this is a very specific description of, of, of what's going to happen. These guys that meet Saul are going to take the initiative to do this. Now, this is going to be, uh, you can't miss this. You know, he says this is going to happen, and you come across three guys with three goats and three loaves of bread and a jug of wine, and you're, you're thinking, oh, yeah, Saul told me this is going to happen just like this. This, guy, this is can't miss, right? These are the guys. And so they're going to give them some of that food. By the way, these guys were probably going up, it says going up to God. They were probably going up to worship God. And so... They, or they were going up to worship God, no doubt. And this food was probably uh, you know, going to give, be given to the priest, maybe Samuel at that time. And so they're going to give Saul two of these loaves, which shows, is going to show him honor, as if you would give to a, a priest. They're going to give it to the king-to-be. They don't know what's going on. These guys don't know this. This is just going to be a sign to Saul to confirm this, a definite, specific sign. Uh, it cannot be a coincidence. It won't be a coincidence because of all the details involved. Sign number two. It's going to be a third sign to confirm Saul's, uh, the idea that Saul's going to be king, verses 5 to 7. Uh, Saul says, or Samuel says to Saul, furthermore, you're going to go up to the hill of God, wherever that is, it's debatable, probably near Saul's hometown, and a group of prophets are going to meet you. They're going to be playing musical instruments. And then the, uh, verse 6 says, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you mightily, and you're going to prophesy and be changed into another man. And that third sign with Saul prophesying is going to show that, Saul, that God is working supernaturally in the life of Saul to bring him to the place to where he's going to be king. He's not going to be a prophet forever, just temporarily, just as a validating sign. Verse 7 says, When these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. That phrase, do for yourself what the occasion, what the occasion re- requires, I believe uh, Justin read the ESV is more accurate in that statement. Do, do for yourself literally what your hand finds, is what he says there. Do for yourself what your hand finds when these signs come to pass. The idea is that the Lord has providentially guided uh, Sam, Saul to this point, as we saw in chapter 9, and God's going to continue to be with him. And so Saul then can do whatever he needs to do, whatever action he needs to take as the king of Israel, military action, whatever. Saul can take those actions because God is with them. And so we see two, the two truths in front of us again that we see throughout the entire Bible, right? Sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, always walking together uh, hand in hand, right? Uh, God providentially guides us. God uh, is with us. And we have seen that, that God guided Saul providentially, right? Uh, and, yeah, and, and also, we've, we've got to see that, that Saul has a responsibility to take. It's not just the providence of God, it's Saul being responsible because it says he must do for himself what his hand finds to do. He's got to take action as a king. Uh, will the Lord help him? Of course he will. It says God is with him. God is with Saul. But Saul will have to govern the kingdom. Saul's going to have to fight the battles. You remember that? 
they said earlier, the Lord had said in chapter 8, I was fighting your battles for you, now you want a king? Okay, your king's going to fight your battles for you. Saul's going to have to do that. He's going to have to take responsibility. He's going to have to administrate the kingdom, carry out the demands of kingship. That's his responsibility, right? So he's got to do his job. You know, we can never, and I've, and I've heard people almost hint at this at times, we can never use the providential ordering of, of the events by God as an excuse for us to not take any action of any kind. Amen. We can't do that. And, 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 and yet I hear people almost saying this, well, God's sovereign. God's providence is, is there. I, I, I realize that God's sovereign. I think everybody in this church knows that. We've been taught that 100,000 times maybe. Um, and yet we have to take action. That's how the Lord has done, has designed it. You know, we, we, I should never think, well, the Lord's with me, and he is ordering things providentially, and I can't affect, affect the outcome anyway. Therefore, there's nothing I should do except just sit back and let God do his providential work. Um, but we need to understand that God has ordained the means as well as the outcome, right? He's ordained the means to the end, not just the outcome itself. And I don't care if you're the first, you're getting ready to be the first king of Israel or you're sitting here tonight as in the Grace Bible Church of Tampa, right? We have a job to do, a responsibility that God has given us to be fulfilled. But we can be assured that as we carry out our responsibility that God is with us, right? God is with us as we do that. We're not alone in this thing. He's with us. By the way, popular and contrary to belief, God was with Saul. That's what it says here. He was with Saul. Now, unfortunately, this phrase used in connection with Saul, God is with you, is only used here concerning Saul. It's used of David many times in 1 Samuel, but of Saul, it's used one time. Now, just for the record, at the beginning of Saul's reign, it says, the Lord says, I'm with you, Saul. You know, the Lord was willing to help Saul out. He was willing to, even though the people had asked for a king selfishly, they'd asked for a king like all the other nations for the wrong motives. Nevertheless, the Lord says, I'm going to be with you, Saul. I'm going to help you out. The question is this, though. Will Saul be with God? Will Saul trust in the, in the sufficiency of God? That's the question. In verse 8, Saul is given further instructions. He's to go to Gilgal. He's to wait there seven days until Samuel comes to sacrifice. And then he'll be given more instructions. You know, out of all these three signs, only, only one is going to be uh, described for us in the next few verses. The first two are skipped over. They take place, but they're not described at all. But in verses 9 to 13, the last sign, the one about Saul becoming a prophet, that's described for us. Look at verse 9. And it happened when he turned, when Saul turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all those signs came about on that day. Now, this is a very interesting verse. Verse 9, Saul is given another heart. Literally, it says this, God turned for him another heart. Or God changed for him another heart. That's what it says. Now, first of all, let me say that only God can change hearts, right? No one else can change a heart but God. We can, you know, you can't reform yourself. I mean, to the Lord's satisfaction, you can't reform yourself. Uh, someone may try some degree of self-reformation, but it's only going to be that and nothing more. It's not going to be a true work of the Holy Spirit if, you're just, if it's just about self-reformation, right? That's not how it, how it works. It's only going to be a work of the flesh. But only God can bring about a, sp a true spiritual change in your life, right? That's why uh, it says in Acts 16.14, you remember Lydia in Acts 16.14? It says that the Lord opened her heart, right? 
the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Paul was preaching the gospel, telling her the truth of God's word, and the Lord opens her heart to that truth. So God is sovereign in the matter of salvation. We know this, right? But in 1 Samuel chapter 10, something different is happening here. There's no message of repentance being given. There's no uh, mention of turning to God. There's no warning from a prophet to Saul to turn from his evil. None of that at all. And I do not believe in this context that the author is speaking of salvation or the new birth in connection with Saul. I don't believe that. Uh, This is the only time this exact language is used in the entire Bible exactly uh, regarding this idea of having another heart like it says, state, as it's stated here. Now, keep the context in mind, okay? It's very important. Keep the context in mind. It's used in connection with Saul becoming king. He's being validated as, as to his kingship. That's what's happening. We're talking about validating signs that confirm the anointing of Saul as king. And I know this is a difficult chapter. It really is in, the, in, in different respects. But Saul would become a deliverer for, for, for Israel. He'd been on his father's farm all, all his youth, right? He was out, he was thinking about, cam, uh, uh, I was going to say camels, maybe camels. He was thinking about donkeys and uh, cattle and things like that, which is fine. That's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That was his job then. But he didn't know anything about kingship. He didn't know anything about leadership of a nation. He didn't know anything about being a statesman or a politician or administrator of, you know, royal affairs. Or the, none of that. He didn't know any of that at all. He grew up as a Kind of a farm boy, you could say, I guess. In a wealthy family, yes. But I think God is simply giving him now this other heart, as a, meaning that he has a new understanding of his, of his role as king. He understands that he's going to have a new role as king. He's no longer going to chase donkeys around, right? He's no longer going to tend to his former duties uh, at, the, at the farm. He's going to be the king of Israel. And so God changed his heart for this purpose to become the king of Israel. And I think that's what he's saying here. But even with this changed heart to become the, the ruling king of Israel, Saul still, as you, as you will see in time to come, he still rebels against God, right? He still rebels. So let me ask you a question here. Was Saul a saved man? Was he a saved man? Was he a true believer? Well, that's a great debate, isn't it? <laughs> it says literally, God changed for him another heart. Changed for him another heart. It does not say God gave him a new heart, by the way simply says God changed for him another heart. Now, as we look upon his life on the whole, we find that this man, Saul, has some very serious spiritual problems, don't we? Very serious spiritual issues going on. And we know that a truly saved person is going to live differently, right, than he used to live. That's what the Scripture teaches, no doubt about it. Um, now, as for me, I'm going, to let, I'm going to wait until we finish studying Saul to make a judgment on this. I'm going to let God be the judge of this, okay? That's what I'm going to do. Hold off until we finish teaching entirely on Saul. However, the Bible teaches very plainly, if if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, right? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's always going to be a struggle for us with sin while we're in the body. We're always going to struggle with sin. But we're not going to stay the same if we're believers. We're going to be different from what we used to be. The, The scriptures teach that. There's a vast difference between... Um, the unbeliever and the believer, the person uh, without Christ as opposed to the one who has come to Christ and now he is serving him, right? Ephesians 4.18 says this, that the unbelieving 
walk in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Their heart is hardened. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, Paul says, you believers have not so learned Christ. You've not learned Christ in that way. You're different. He makes it a point to point out the fact that believers are different from those who are not believers. The heart of the unbelieving still belongs to Satan, doesn't it? He's still in the realm of Satan's, he's still in Satan's territory. His heart is still darkened. He still lives in spiritual darkness. Um, but the heart of the believer is a radically changed heart. And it may take a while for you to see that uh, as, as, he, as he learns and grows in Christ, but it's a changed heart. Listen to how, listen to how the Bible describes the heart of a person who's a, who's a believer in Christ. Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God has been poured with, out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And so, whereas the unbeliever, he doesn't care about anybody. Um, um, a person in here told me when he was unsaved, he says, I didn't care about anybody except what they could do for me. And that's true. The believer now has the love of God, right? Shed it broad in his heart. He has the capacity to love God and love people. 2 Corinthians 1.22, God sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge, right? Now we have the Spirit of God living within us. 2 Corinthians 4.6, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness <clears throat> is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of, of Christ. There's a lot of people that are deceived, right? They think that if they pray a prayer... Uh, or to go through some kind of religious ceremony that they are, you know, somehow born again, but their lives are no different. Their hearts are no different than they were originally, and they're deceived. True salvation means you have a new heart, and you're a new creation in Christ. Now, like I said, as for Saul, I'm going to hold off judgment until we finish studying him in its entirety, right? And even then, what does it matter? Because God's his judge, not me or you, right? As God is the judge of all of us. But let's go back to verse 9. It says, God turned for Saul another heart, and all those signs came about on that day. One sign followed after the other. All three signs took place. And in the verses that we have before us, the last sign is highlighted in particular. And just like Samuel said in verses 9 to 13, a, a group of prophets, sure enough, came along. They met him. The Spirit of God came upon him. By the way, the Spirit of God came upon some unlikely characters in the Old Testament, didn't they? Didn't he? Like Balaam? Balaam, the prophet for hire, the Spirit of God came upon him in Numbers 24. And here the Spirit of God comes upon Saul. And it says he came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. Well, what did he prophesy? I'd like to know, wouldn't you like to know what he said? We're not, it's not recorded, so we don't know. We can't find that information out. Uh, how was he able to prophesy, though? The Spirit of God enabled him, right? That's what it says. The Spirit of God enabled him or else he would not have been able to do it. And when the Spirit of God came upon a person in the Old Testament, it was for a definite purpose, a reason. Like, remember Samson? The Spirit of God rushed upon him. Why? So he could slay Philistines. Or so he could kill a lion. Came upon Gideon so he could defeat the enemy. Those kind of things. Definite purpose. And in Saul's case, it was for the purpose of prophesying. To show that the Lord was working supernaturally in his life, which is a validating sign 
confirming the fact that Saul would be the king of Israel. Confirmation. Validating him. Now, verse 11 says, And it came about when all those who knew him previously, these people knew Saul previously, when they saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to one another, What's happened to the son of Kish? That's Saul's father. Is Saul also among the prophets? Those who had known him previous to this were sh- shocked. Uh, you know, when, when you, as, as we study Saul in chapter 9, um, he doesn't exactly to be, uh, appear to be a spiritual giant, does he, to us? I mean, he seemed to kind of be kind of like spiritually unaware of what was going on. Uh, he's tall physically, but not spiritually, right? He seems to be spiritually dull in chapter 9. Remember, it was his servant who pointed out the fact that, hey, there's a prophet here that everything he says comes to pass, and let's go look. Let's go ask him where the lost donkeys are. Because all, after all, chapters 9 and 10 are about lost donkeys, right? You see it over and over again. Let's, go, let's find out where they are. Let's ask the prophet. And it was the servant who knew the whereabouts of Samuel. He, he was the one who knew where Samuel was. Saul didn't seem to have a clue as to where he was. It's very strange the way Saul acts in chapter 9. The, it was the servant who knew the, knew the reputation of Samuel as, as the man of God, the prophet, right? So you get the impression in chapter 9 that Saul is not exactly on the cutting edge of spiritual understanding, right? Seems to be kind of unaware, out of touch almost spiritually. But now he's prophesying. And this is not some forgery, spiritual forgery going on. He's actually prophesying by, because the Spirit of God is enabling him. Now his acquaintances don't know, that the people that see him, that have previously known him, hey, going on with Saul. He's never shown this kind of spirituality before. He's kind of spiritually dull. Now he's prophesying. They didn't know this was a confirming sign. They had no idea what was going on. Can you imagine their reaction? They thought this is very strange. So they said, is Saul also among the prophets? Is this possible that this guy Saul is prophesying? I don't get it. They didn't understand it. He had never shown any tendency toward the prophetic gift before. He had you know, was out there looking for lost donkeys, as, as far as some people knew. Apparently not everybody even knew that, as we'll see later on in this chapter. And so they wondered, what, what's going on here? It's kind of a shock to the people. And in verse 12, there's another question that's asked. They said, now who is their father? Who's the father of these prophets? In other words, who's the spiritual father or the spiritual leader of these prophets? Remember later on in Kings, Elijah, they call him father, my father. This, he's the spiritual father of those of those the young prophets that are around. And so the question is asked, who is their spiritual father? Almost in a derogatory sense. In other words, as if to say, doesn't the spiritual leader of these prophets know that Saul's not a prophet? What's going on here anyway? So they're all they're perplexed, they're confused as to what's happening. And so out of this comes a proverb, as it says here, is Saul also among the prophets? Now we might say something today analogous to that. We might say, wonders never cease. They would say, is Saul also among the prophets? It referred to something that was beyond their ability to explain. They couldn't explain this phenomenon of Saul prophesying. So they came up with this proverb. We don't, we don't get it, you know. Well, when Saul finished prophesying, he goes up to the high place, probably to worship, according to verse 13. And, uh, and so you have these validating signs predicted, and, and they came to pass. And it gave confirmation to Saul that he was indeed chosen to be the Lord's first king of Israel. He needed those assurances. And so God in his grace gave him those assurances. 
That's Saul's validation. In verses 14 to 16, we see Saul's, con- uh, Saul's conversation. This is kind of an aside in the passage. Just a little more uh, uh, interesting details here. It says in verse 14, Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servants, Where did you go? He said to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they could not be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. Interesting information here. But he did not tell him about the matter of the kingdom which, Saul, which Samuel had mentioned. Now, you have Saul, Saul's uncle here, an unnamed uncle, uh, who may later on figure into the story if it's, it's that particular uncle. We'll, we'll, get, we'll talk about that later. But he realizes that Saul's been away for a while, and he doesn't seem to know the reason why. His father knew why. The uncle says, where have you been? Saul answers truthfully, well, I've been looking for lost donkeys. So again, we're confronted with the donkeys, right? I tell you, it's, it's both these chapters. That's how this whole episode started. In chapter 9, uh, the Lord used these lost, lost donkeys in his providence to bring Saul to Samuel to be anointed king. And that, was, that started in chapter 9, verse 3. Now we're in chapter 10, verse 14, and we're still talking about the lost donkeys, right? We talked about how, by the way, last time we, talk, we, we were in chapter 9, we talked about how the Lord works through normal circumstances, everyday circumstances, small circumstances of life, details of life to accomplish his purposes. That's what he does. He works through us day by day to accomplish his purposes. And I, I might have left you with the impression that the mundane, ordinary, even boring activities of life are not important. Um, but I, I, I want to correct that. If I, if I left you with that impression, they are important. Your job is important. I don't care how mundane and boring it might be. Your job is important. Your household and what you do in your household and raising your children, all the little tiny things that take place, that's important too uh, as you raise your children. You know, the Lord expects us to do the best we can on our jobs, no matter what what the job is. Every job, by the way, is important. I don't care what the job is. Uh, Every vocation is important if it's legitimate and God has you there. Then, then work is under the Lord, right? Do your best, and uh, or wh- wh- wherever it may be. Colossians 1, 23, whatever you do, do your work hardly, as for the Lord rather than for men. Always think that when you go to your job, your mundane job, right? Think to yourself, I'm doing this for God. And God will work through those circumstances to bring about his goal. Our, our goal is to glorify God in circumstances big or small. It doesn't matter what it is. Anyway, Saul continued his explanation in verse 14. He says, look, <clears throat> we couldn't find the donkey, so we went to see Samuel. Now, that's the first time that Saul calls him Samuel. In chapter 9, he called him the man of God after his servant pointed out, by the way, there's a man of God here. Are you aware of this? I know you're not too bright spiritually, but the man of God here. He calls him man of God. He calls him the seer in chapter 9 also. But now for the first time after having gotten to know, know Samuel a little bit on Remember they had that conversation on the roof in chapter 9? He has gotten to know him somewhat. Now he calls him Samuel. Well, Saul's uncle is very curious, and he says, uh, what did uh, the prophet tell you anyway? Samuel, what did he say to you? I mean, everything Samuel says comes to pass, right? The answer is, well, you know, he told us that the donkeys were found. And that's the last time we hear about the donkeys, by the way, I think. They may come up, you know, in another chapter. I can't guarantee they won't. I believe this is the last time we hear about the donkeys. But Saul did not tell his uncle about the matter of the kingdom. He, that was, 
even though he was a close relative, he didn't let that out because that was for a future time. The time would come at the end of the chapter, we'll see it in a little while, where Saul would be presented as the king of Israel, and so the time was not yet to, to tell this information. That brings us to the last section, chapter 17 and 27, Saul's presentation, his presentation. It says in verse 17, Therefore, after, Thereafter Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. Now this is not only a political announcement. I want, you know, Samuel says, hey, I want to announce to you, you have a king finally. He's going to take care of your... You know, he's going to administrate your country uh, as a statesman. He doesn't, it's not what it is. He says, it says in verse 17 that Samuel called the people together to what? To the Lord, right? So this becomes a spiritual gathering. It reminds you of another gathering that took place at the same place, Mizpah. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 7 when <clears throat> Samuel called the people together at Mizpah? And he said, repent of your sin, repent of your idolatry. This is after a long time of really no repentance through the days of the judges. He calls together the people to repent, and they have a revival in Mizpah, a revival for the nation. Now they're called back to the same place, Mizpah, for another spiritual gathering, and that is for the announcement of the new king. They don't know it yet. They don't know why he called them together. And so in verses 18 and 19, he reminds them, as Samuel will do, as has done in chapter 8, does here and does later on, um, he reminds them of their sin in choosing a king. Remember they sinned by saying we want a king like everybody else and, uh, and they rejected God, it says. And it says that in verse 19. You, you've rejected your God who delivers you. Yet you said, no, set a king over us. Now we, we talked about this already, how it was God's will for them to have a king. The Messiah came through the line of the kings and all that. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But nevertheless, their motive was wrong and trust in, in how they went about it. They didn't want to trust the Lord anymore to subdue their enemies. Uh, they, didn't want to, they wanted a king like everybody else. So Saul, Saul, Samuel says, a king you shall have then. So he begins the selection process to find a king. Now they had already, Samuel had already anointed Saul privately, chapter 10, verse 1, right? But no one knew that. Just Samuel and Saul knew that information. So now he's going to go public with this thing, and he begins the selection process, process of choosing a king. A king. In verse 20, it says the method that he uses to choose a king. Very interesting. Thus Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by what? Taken by Lot, right? Now, casting lots was like rolling the dice back in that day. Um, Samuel had chosen the king already. God had already appointed Saul to be the king. No one knew that except Saul and Samuel. And it had been private, right? But now, uh, and, and, and some people had seen Saul prophesying, but they didn't know what was going on. They thought Saul's lost his mind, I guess. Or he's a, what's he doing? Acting like a prophet. And so Samuel uses this method of casting lots to find a king, which is going to be, appear to be very fair to the people in the nation. Like, almost like a roll of the dice. Very unbiased way to choose a king. Now through this method of this random roll of the dice, the tribe of Benjamin is singled out. It just so happens that the 
snake eyes land on Benjamin, right? And Benjamin is called out to be, you know, tribe of Benjamin, step forward here. Apparently you've been chosen by this lot business, this lot method. Then the Matrite family is taken uh, in verse 20, 21. Then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. The Matrite family was taken. Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And so Saul is, is through all this, Saul is chosen publicly to be the king. Now, this is amazing. I didn't realize this till the other day. This is absolutely amazing. In my opinion, this is nothing less than miraculous. What are the chances of having Saul chosen as the king in, in this random roll of the dice? What are the chances of that happening? What are the odds of that happening? What would be the odds of you winning a million dollars in the lottery? Slim and none, right? I'm not advocating you go out and play the lottery, by the way. Don't say, Mark said to go out and play the lottery. I'm not saying that. I think it's a foolish way to spend money. But what are the chances of, of someone winning like that? Slim and none. Um, but the odds of Saul becoming king like this, by, by lot, by, by, throw, by casting lots publicly, to match what had already happened privately when Samuel had anointed him, what are the chances of that happening? Virtually none, right? It's, in my opinion, it's, it's miraculous. How is it possible? It's possible because even, the Lord is even in charge of the random events of life. That's how it's possible. Even the random events. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord's providential guidance of Saul is obvious again. We see it again. We see the Lord using lost donkeys providentially in his life. Now we see the roll of the dice, random events being used to confirm the kingship of Saul. No one could argue with the method of selection. They couldn't say it wasn't fair because everybody had their chance, right, equally. The entire nation was at the mercy of the roll of the dice, but the, the, here's the thing. God is in charge of the roll of the dice, right? He's in charge of it. He's the one that, that calls the shots. He's in charge. So again, we're led to see in these chapters that we always have to recognize the unseen God, hand of God in the events of daily life even those events which seem to be random at best. God is working. He's in charge. But there was a problem. The problem was not that God couldn't overcome the, the odds of the lot being thrown. The problem was the location of Saul. Where'd he go? No one knows. Verse 21 says, somewhere along the way they lost sight of where Saul went to. He seems to be disappeared. Now earlier the donkeys were lost and Saul couldn't find them, right? Now Saul is lost, lost and the people can't find him. It's interesting that the word find is used again and again in chapters 9 and 10, by the way. So where's he at? Verse 22 gives us the answer. Therefore they inquire further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? This man that you've chosen to be the king, where's he at? The Lord said, behold, he's hiding himself by the baggage. He's hiding behind the baggage. And every time I see that, I think of luggage in an airport somewhere. But it's not talking about luggage or suitcases. It's probably talking about military supplies, which, interestingly enough, Saul would become very familiar with you know, in his reign as king. He's hiding behind these military supplies in all likelihood. And how was he, how was he found? Well, the people prayed, they inquired of God, and God said, he's over there. The Lord pointed out to him, he's there hiding behind the baggage. They found him. Verse 23 says he's taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Saul did a pretty good job of hiding, didn't he? He's not a little guy. He's a big guy. He's a tall guy. 
And yet, the Lord knew where he was, didn't he? And the lesson here is that God knows where we are. He knows what's going on. He knows all things. We cannot hide from God, can we? We can run, and we can try to hide, but the Lord knows where you are. He knows where I'm at. It doesn't matter uh, where you're hiding. If he wants you for his service, you cannot escape. He wanted Saul for his service, in this case to be a king. Saul tried to escape it, uh, I think, because I think here he was fearful, and yet God found him. If, if God wants you to do something, though, he's going to find you, right? Because he knows where you are. He, know, he doesn't have to look. He knows where you are already. He knows all things. Why did Saul hide is the question. I think, you know, Saul, as, as I've said before, is a very complex individual. It's a, a case in psychological study, probably, uh, for a psychiatrist. And here he shows one of his many sides. He's, and I think he's fearful here. I think he's fearful of taking the kingship. He's, think about it. He's going to be the first one, right? No one's ever done this in Israel. Uh, here's a guy out of nowhere, doesn't expect anything to happen in his life other than what's happening in his life. And now he's chosen to do this, and it's not going to be easy. And I think this is something all of us deal with, right? Fear. All of us deal with fear. We, we're fearful of, uh, of stepping out of our comfort zone to take some kind of opportunity on. I'm talking about ministry opportunities right now as it pertains to our church. We're fearful of stepping out to doing something, the unknown, right? Or that's not we're not comfortable with. Um, and, and we feel ill-equipped to do it. There's not a week that goes by that I don't feel ill-equipped to do this, ever, never, every single week. Um, but Saul was giving another heart, was, had been given another heart for the purpose of being king. God is, is preparing him. He's given all that he needs to do the job, and yet we find him afraid, right? Can you relate to that? Can you relate to that, having fear of maybe God wants you to do a certain thing, and you're thinking, wow, maybe he's singled you out to, do a certain, to, to serve him in the way he's chosen, and you're afraid to do it. And you're thinking, wow, I don't. I don't like that. It's uncomfortable. And that's why, but, but God has equipped you to do that thing. And that's why you can't let fear stand in the way. What do we do with our fear? We've got to take it to God, right? That's all we can do. Take it to him and trust him. Instead of trying to hide from the very people he wants you to minister to, take it to God and trust him. That's what Saul teaches us here. Think about it. Saul is privately anointed by, Saul, by Samuel to be the king. He's validated by three signs. He was... He was, it was almost self-validating. He was participating in all those signs. He's miraculously chosen by a lot of miracle, and so he's ready to go, right? <laughs> now he's actually very fearful, and he has to be hunted down and found because he's afraid. Well, what do we do with our fears? We take them to the Lord, right? Well, that's what we should do with them. I don't know what else we could do with them because God has enabled us by his spirit to do what he's called us to do. And so Samuel presents his king in verse 24 as the one whom the Lord has chosen. By the way, what the people chose uh, with evil motives, God chose sovereignly for his own reasons. The same guy, interestingly enough. And so we've got a relationship again here between God's sovereignty and the will of the people. We see it again, again and again in these chapters. Um, we see it. So Saul, Samuel presents Saul to the people. He tells them there's no one like him. No one like him, it says, verse 24, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. He's very impressive, isn't he? We've already seen this in the opening verses of chapter 9. He's, very t he's tall, tallest guy in Israel, appears, apparently. Handsome, it says, beginning of chapter 9, verse 2. 
He looks like a leader. <clears throat> this is what the people wanted. They asked for a guy like all other nations. This guy looks like the guy to them. And so this is who they're going to get. And in verse 25, Samuel tells the people the, what's called in the NASB the ordinances of the kingdom. Um, he wrote them down in a book. It's kind of like a legal document where there are witnesses. God is a witness. The people are the witnesses. This is this ordinances of the kingdom. These ordinances of the kingdom are how the king is going to be run. They're the rules of the kingdom. They're how the kingdom is going to be um, conducted. Uh, maybe it included uh, the procedure of the king in chapter eight. Remember that the king's going to take your uh, sons and, and put them in his military. He's going to take your daughters and make them perfumers and bakers. He's going to take your land and tax it and all these things. That could have been part of it. It could have included the regulations from Deuteronomy 17 about kings. It says, you know, the king should <coughs> govern according to the word of God. He should do things according to the word of God. But whatever was in it, all that was made official. Saul's the king. It's official. Saul's going to rule in the kingdom. <coughs> After that, they have a great celebration, right? No, it says everybody goes home. They all go home, including Saul. There's no temple anywhere, so, so his office is going to have to be at his house in Gibeah, right? So he goes back to his home in Gibeah. And by the way, he's not going to take his first action as king until chapter 11. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next week. And finally, in this chapter, there, there are two groups mentioned um, that are worlds apart. Look at verse 26. <clears throat> Saul also went to his house at Gibeah, and the valiant men whose, whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present, but he kept silent. <clears throat> Verse 26 speaks first of the first group of the, of the valiant men whose hearts God had touched. God had, uh, they were going to support Saul in his kingdom. God had brought these people along to support Saul in the kingdom. You know, by, a king by himself cannot do the job, right? How's a king going to have a, run a kingdom by himself? It doesn't work that way. He's got to have a bunch of people helping him out. And that's, what, and that's what God did. He got those people together. And one man cannot do the work of the ministry either. God has so designed it that, that he wants all hands on deck, right? He wants everybody to come together uh, in a church to serve him. It's not just Mike Sprott's job to, to do the work of God here. It's everybody's. And so God, when God does a work, he touches the hearts of all the people that he wants to be involved in that work. And he brings them into that work to help in that work. The work of the church is never the, the, the job of two or three people or a handful of people. It's together, everyone, serving the Lord, right? It's a group banded together, the churches, by the providence of God with one mind to do the work of God. And that's how it's to be done. Never a one-man operation. It never is. should not be, at least. But I tell you what, there's, unfortunately, there's another group <clears throat> mentioned in verse 27. And that group, which existed then, those guys are still around today. Same type people. They are what one person called the ne'er-do-wells. I love the phrase, the ne'er-do-wells. They're the worthless men. It says in verse 27, certain worthless men came along. Now, that same term <clears throat> was used to describe Hophni, the sons of, Hophni, uh, of Eli, rather, Hophni and Phinehas. In chapter 2, I believe, they're called worthless men. These guys are, these are not good guys. And what do they say? They say, almost sneering, they say, how can this one deliver us? Who's this guy? How can he deliver us? They despised him, it says. And they didn't bring him any presents at all. 
And so these guys are the party poopers, right? They're supposed to bring him a gift, a gift to honor uh, the king. Not, they refuse to give the gift. They're not going to do it. They refuse to do it. And so they're, they're the group that opposes the king. Have you ever seen these guys, by the way? They're the ones that argue with the pastor all the time. They're the ones that don't like how the church does things. They're the ones that are unhappy with the direction the church is taking. They have their own agenda, right? They think they have a better idea on how the church should be run. In fact, they have a better idea than God even of how things should be done. And I've seen these people. We've talked to some of them, and we've seen them come along, and that's how they do things. There will always be these two groups, those who support the church and those who oppose the church, those who support the work of God, those who oppose the work of God. That's how it is. It's always been that way throughout history, and it always will be, so expect it. It's always going to be that way. Saul, his reaction wisely is to keep silent and not say anything. Saul's kingdom brought division in Israel. And in the same way, Christ's kingdom brings division. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies. This is straight out of Micah, this phrase. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. Either you stand on the side of Christ or you stand against him. One of the two. No neutral ground. It's one or the other. For those of us who know him, for those of us who, who know that the Lord is saved, we have the assurance that God is with us. God is with us. And that's a great thought and a great, great assurance and a great blessing to know that the presence of God is with us. So tonight, let's take the advice of Samuel in verse 7 where he said, Do for yourself what your hand finds to do. In other words, get involved. In our case, get involved in the work of the ministry and get busy and be faithful at it. You're not going to be alone because God is with you. Or as Jesus said in Matthew, as Mike quoted today, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age.